0: Well, uh, this morning, I get to preach about divorce. I guarantee you I did not wake up on Monday morning, this past Monday, and say, I think this Sunday, I think I'll preach about divorce. Who doesn't love to hear about divorce? It's a byproduct of our approach to Mark. And we're going through verse by verse, because Jesus taught about divorce, it's our responsibility to come to grips with what Jesus had to say about divorce, but even more about marriage, what marriage is supposed to be like. Getting ready for this sermon, trying to come to grips with the, the meaning of Mark chapter 10, has got me thinking about those numbers that you hear thrown around a lot in, in American culture in particular. Numbers like, like the fact that half of all marriages end in divorce. or An even more troubling number... Half of all marriages among believers, among evangelical Christians, end in divorce. And those numbers are cause for some real concern, legitimate concern. Usually what's being... the sort of gloom and doom crowd that applies those numbers. Usually it has to do with the fact that Christians aren't living any differently than anyone else, and that's a legitimate criticism. But I think what's hidden in those numbers, what you don't see, is the fact that marriage is not just falling apart In our day, marriage has been under siege from the beginning of time. Marriage has been a problem for every generation since sin entered the picture. What you don't see are all those marriages that were just as broken as any legally broken marriage today that weren't legally broken because it was harder to come by or because the mores of the society in the 50s or whenever wouldn't allow for divorce in the same way that it does today. The, the broken marriages that were loveless and even abusive that stayed together because of, of other factors in the society. What, it, what the numbers about today hide is the fact that in most cultures throughout all of history, marriage has come and gone really easily. What they hide is the fact that marriage has always been a problem for sinful people. Marriage was certainly a problem in Jesus' day. Divorce was easier to come by then, I think, than it it is now. I mean, there's no way to get a close one-to-one comparison, but there were provisions among first-century Judaism that allowed for divorce for things like bad cooking or if you found someone who looked better than, than than the spouse that you had. Those are in the laws that are written trying to interpret the things that Moses said. Divorce was easy to come by then, just as it is today. Jesus' teaching on discipleship, which is where we come in, in Mark chapter 10, in the middle of, of chapters on both sides of this section, teaching about what it means to follow a, a Jesus who's going to suffer and die. His teaching on discipleship covers even this basic issue of marriage. Conversation tends to plop right down in the middle of, 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 of talk about suffering and, and cross-centered living. This one seems to just fall out of nowhere because Jesus was asked a question and Mark recorded his answer. But it's part of the same package that we've been discussing in the past few weeks and that we'll continue discussing uh, throughout the the rest of our time in Mark. The point is that Jesus, what he came to do, has implications for how we follow him. And those implications are played out even in this most basic human relationship. What I want to do is, is show first... Make sure first that we've got this clear understanding of how Jesus explains God's design for marriage. Just as Jesus has done on issues of the Sabbath, on issues of hand-washing, when it comes to this religious issue, this, this provision about what the law does and doesn't allow, Jesus explodes what has been expected up until this point. We want to make sure we've understood that clearly first. Jesus' answer has to do with the design of God for marriage. Then we'll step into the reality that is the way we live now. Jesus' designed for marriage is tied to creation as if it never fell, as if sin never happened. What we have to do is try to understand how we make the ideal that Jesus establishes for us real in the context of relationships that are affected by sin just like anything else. That's our task for today. What does Jesus have to say, and then what do we do with it? First, will you stand with me as we read from Mark chapter 10? If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you today, we've got some Bibles for you on the uh, the, the end of each aisle in the center. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you just to take it with you. and, And we'd love to answer any questions you might have about it. We're going to read from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus answers a question here about divorce with an explanation of the way marriage is supposed to be. In short, Jesus' answer is that marriage, as designed by God, is an inseparable bond. That's where we're headed. But I think to get there, we need to break down the individual pieces of this conversation. We need to understand the question, where it's coming from, why it matters in this particular context. Then we'll understand Jesus' answer and its implications. So the, the question first. The story begins as Jesus is teaching. He's been doing this all over the place, throughout Mark. He's teaching crowds who gather to him. We're not told what he's teaching, because Mark is always more interested in the fact that he teaches with authority than in, than in what it is that he's saying. And then once again... He's confronted by those who have been dogging him since nearly the beginning of his ministry. He's confronted by these classic enemies, the Pharisees. These are the same ones who are going to seek his life just a few chapters from now. These are the religious authorities that were some of the most respected in their time, and they prided themselves on their detailed knowledge of the law. So they come at, the way they come at Jesus, just as they done on the issue of the Sabbath and just as they done on the issue of, of hand washings back in chapter 7, the way they come at Jesus is with an issue of law and interpretation of it. They want to try to get him trapped in some sort of heresy, some sort of break with Moses or the other respected authorities of the time. That's their goal. That's why Mark tells us, tips us off, that they, that they asked this in order to test him. Now, their question on the surface seems pretty straightforward. It seems innocent, even. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what's going on behind the scenes there? In light of the conversations that were taking place within Judaism at the time, what's going on is there was a big fight among the scholars about when and where it was okay to get a divorce. Pretty much nobody doubted that divorce could be okay in some settings. They had this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm not going to read it for you today, but Deuteronomy chapter 24 speaks about marriage and speaks about the situations in which it's okay to write for your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. What the passage says is that if the wife no longer finds favor in the eyes of her husband for some indecency, that's the way the English translation is, he may write her a certificate and send it away. All of their ink was spilled interpreting the word indecency. What did that mean? When was it okay, in other words? That's what we should read into this question, even though it says, is it, is it ever right to divorce? What they're really asking is, when is it okay? Take a side. There were two basic sides. You had the conservative group, followers of a guy named Shammai. You had the liberal group, followers of a guy named Hillel. The conservative side of things, they took indecency to mean sexual immorality, plain and simple. That's it. If, if your wife is unfaithful, and we are talking about husbands divorcing wives here in, in this provision, then that does it. But that's the only case in which it's okay. The liberal group, followers of Hillel, they took a very broad interpretation of the word indecency. They're the ones who wrote these provisions I mentioned earlier. They literally quote it. You could quote from their provisions, if she spoils a dish you can send her away. If you find someone who you think looks better, send her away. If for any reason some other option seems more favorable in the eyes of the husband, that's indecency and it's over. That's probably where the Pharisees were coming from and they were trying to get Jesus to find a position. That's the issue. That's the question that Jesus responds to in the rest of this passage. So his answer begins in verse 3. Jesus' answer turns their perspective on its head. He's got to do two things in his answer. The first thing he has to do is expose that they're coming at the issue from the wrong perspective altogether. Jesus points them back to Moses. He asks in verse 3, what did Moses command you? Notice that word. What did Moses command you? And their answer, Moses permitted. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're referring, of course, to Deuteronomy 24, what I've already explained. Jesus, though, insists that this is merely Moses trying to regulate what's already happening on the ground. Moses doesn't command you to send, a, to send your wife away. Moses permits it in a, as, as a, an attempt to control a fallen, broken, sin-ridden reality that was just in place already. Divorces were going on like crazy. Moses is trying to protect, if you get into the details of this Provision. Moses is trying to protect the interests of a woman who is sent away by her husband, to give her some sort of certificate that shows that she uh, that, that that she can take and, and remarry on the basis of this certificate. He's trying to regulate a sinful situation in a way that doesn't take an oppressive advantage of the women. That's where Moses is coming from, and that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You're coming at this from the wrong example from the wrong angle, because your example that you're going to is an example of Moses trying to make a bad situation less bad. That's why Jesus says it's because of your hardness of heart that wrote Moses wrote you this commandment. The point was to control sin, to protect the women, not endorse or prescribe divorce. That's what Jesus first did, You're coming at this from the wrong angle. The second thing Jesus does in his answer is move to what should have been their starting point all along. Not what's permitted, but what's commanded. And to do that, he takes them back to the creation account itself. See, for Jesus, for these that, with whom he's interacting, Moses was just as much author of Genesis as he was of Deuteronomy. And in Genesis, we don't get a permission. We get the way things were supposed to be. We get the ideal established. In other words... Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are what Moses commanded in the eyes of Jesus. He quotes directly from those passages. From the beginning, he says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The design of marriage, what ultimately decides the fate of divorce in Jesus' eyes, is rooted before the fall, before sin ever came into the picture. Where God made man and woman, he made them good, he gave them to each other for mutual benefit and enjoyment. He gave them a union so complete that it's described as one flesh. In the eyes of God, they're seen as one person. It's, it's, it's a reality that's, that's captured physically in the act of sex and practically in the care that husband and wife are supposed to take for each other. That They're to treat the other as if they were their own body. Care for them in the same way they would care for their body. And ultimately, it's a union that's established by God himself Verse 9 is the key. It's the summary of the original plan for marriage in Jesus' mind. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Ultimately, it's a union established by God, and that means that to separate that union will always be an act of man, never an act of God. That's, That's the implication of Jesus' teaching in Mark 10. Now, where Jesus was building to, this radical affirmation of marriage as a permanent bond, bond, this caught even his disciples by surprise. Divorce was happening all the time. It was as basic as, as just a basic part of the marriage fabric in this society. So they need Jesus to tease out the implications of what he's just said. If if marriage is to be viewed not in light of the brokenness that we all live around, but in light of its original purpose, and if its original purpose was established by God as a union that makes these two people one flesh and they can never be separated, then, then what does that mean about divorce? Jesus states this as clearly as he possibly can. When we get back to the house, verses 11 and 12, Jesus spells out the implications. His answer is that remarriage is no different from adultery in the eyes of God. Look at verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In Jesus' eyes, the action is the same one way or the other. Remarriage no different than sleeping with someone's spouse while you're still married. Adultery is applicable in either case because in God's eyes, the marriage itself, the original marriage, still exists. Let me put it this way. The marriage, as as Jesus is talking about it here, is not just a contractual relationship. That's really what it is on the books for us in in our society legally. It's a contract that husband and wife enter into together to do certain things for each other, to share certain things in certain ways. In God's eyes, marriage is not a contract, but it's a status of being. It's what you might call an ontological status. It's who you are. It changes who you are in God's eyes. It's therefore not something that you maintain just as long as it's mutually satisfying or beneficial and then break the contract whenever it's no longer mutually satisfying and beneficial. It's not like two businesses entering into partnership together as long as it might serve the interests of both businesses and breaking off that partnership when it no longer serves those interests It's about a change of being. And therefore, when it's dissolved, the decision is a human one, not recognized by God. Now, before we move on, let me address the fact that we're probably all running in our minds to exceptions. Why would Jesus not allow, would Jesus, we might ask, not allow for divorce in cases of abuse? If a spouse is threatening the life of the other spouse, what about the exceptions in Matthew? or of Paul in 1 Corinthians, where it seems like adultery is an exception. If there's unrepentant and repeated adultery, isn't that an exception? Couldn't we we allow for divorce then? And obviously, there are exceptions. There are exceptions that are given elsewhere in the New Testament. And as, as far as abuse goes, it is never okay to stay in an abusive relationship. At the very least, separation for time is important. But the point in Mark, and I think the reason Mark doesn't record exceptions that are recorded elsewhere, the whole point for Mark is that he doesn't want us doing what the Pharisees were doing, spending our time trying to find out acceptable ways out of marriage. Once there is an exception in place, even this mild permission that Moses offers in Deuteronomy 24, that's where we fixate. When is it okay? What does this exception mean? So, so, so we got this exception for adultery. Okay, well, does that mean if, if my spouse is addicted to pornography, that does it, and I can, I can leave them, divorce is okay there? We, we're going to run to case law, and we're going to start trying to tease it out, and we're going to try to push the boundaries of when divorce is acceptable. We do the same things that the Pharisees do. And that's why Mark doesn't even go there. So 99.9% of the cases, there is no legitimate exception to what Jesus is talking about here. Marriage exists permanently. In the eyes of God. With Jesus, we're to shift our focus not on where it's okay to get out of marriage, but why marriage is itself so important. And that marriage in itself, in the eyes of God, stands fast no matter the ways we try to get around it. That's why I think Jesus comes at marriage in this way. In the eyes of God, it's forever. So, if that's marriage by design, if that's where God intended for these relationships to go, If Jesus, in other words, is taking us back before sin entered the picture and holding that up to our faces as a a mirror of what our marriages should look like, what does that mean for us in light of the fact that the world is fallen, that it's deeply marred by sin, and that there's no way for us to be married together without being affected by the sin that touches everything in our lives? That's the question I think we've got to answer. We've got to answer how this marriage by design matches up with marriage in reality as we experience it. The fact remains that coming at the ideal of marriage from the perspective of purity and perfection isn't an option for us as it was for Adam and Eve. But Jesus knows this, and he still holds up this ideal as our standard without any concession. So how do we live? What do we do? Let me come at this to three different groups. Let me address those of you who are married, those of you who are not married, and those of you who may be divorced. Let me come at those three groups in turn, beginning with those of you who are married. If you're married, as I am, the starting point is the fact that there's no couple for whom marriage isn't work, because there's no couple that's unaffected by sin and selfishness. There is no couple for whom marriage isn't work, because there's no couple that's not affected by sin and selfishness. Ultimately, in Genesis 3, where get the account of sin entering the world, the fall into sin. One of the main things that's addressed as an implication of the sin is strife in the marriage between Adam and Eve. And ultimately, that's played out in the history of marriage from the beginning for every couple who's ever been married. So as sinners, married to sinners, how do we pursue faithfulness in, in marriages as they were designed to be? Let me make two observations here, based on the details of this particular passage and its larger context. Two observations. First, and this gets at the foundation for marriage, for building a marriage in light of sin. First, Jesus' summary of his teaching on God's design for marriage sets the starting point for how we view marriage and the foundation for working at it. Jesus' teaching, summarized in verse 9, is that God is the one who joins together every marriage that's ever existed. It starts with the providence of God who superintends those marriages. So, if you're a believer, what you've got to understand about your marriage, first and foremost, is that no matter what issues you've got, a sovereign God joined this marriage together and He did it for your good. That's a truth that shapes everything. Good theology, a right understanding of God and His purposes and His way of acting in the world is the foundation for a good marriage you must understand first and foremost that no matter what issues you've got, God joined this marriage and He did it for your good. That's a truth that works itself out in every area of your marriage. First, it should shut it should shut down all talk of ending the marriage because a marriage is ordained by God and any attempt to end it is an attempt to put yourself in God's place. It's to put yourself in the place of the one who ordained it. More specifically though, this this truth that God is the one who established your marriage, that in His providence He put you together with your spouse and did it for your good, that truth should shut down what comes so natural in marriage. The comparisons, the what-ifs that hurt so many marriages, the, the what-if your spouse looked like that spouse, what if my spouse treated me with the care and attention of that spouse, what if my spouse had the libido of that spouse, all of these all of these comparisons that you hear about as so key to, to troubles in marriage get shut down by the fact that God is the one who put that marriage together. So the what-ifs, the implications of Jesus' teaching, is that this kind of discontent, the what-ifs that you might ask about your marriage, that's ultimately discontentment against God, not the spouse that He gave you. The God who gave you the spouse, that's who you're discontent with. Marriage always and necessarily limits you. To have one wife or one husband is not to have every other wife and every other husband. That's just part of it. But Christian marriage is about accepting this and embracing it and recognizing that what you have comes from God, that you're joined together by Him in His providence, and therefore your task is not to think about what might have been, but to cultivate what He's given you, to seek the good of what you have. This truth, in other words, shuts down comparison, the what-ifs. The truth that God is the one who joins marriage together also shuts down a universal tendency to fixate on unmet expectations. And I'm not saying that you should not have any expectations for your marriage, that you shouldn't set goals that you're trying to work towards, and that you shouldn't be discontent at some level if you're you're not moving your marriage forward. Because one of the things you've got to understand at the very beginning is that if you're both sinners, you're not what you should be or could be. And your task is to be working in holiness towards more and more Christ-likeness, and that applies to your marriage just as, just as well as to any other part of your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't be pushing forward. I'm talking directly here to the, to the one who feels like expectations aren't being realized, like marriage isn't what you thought it'd be. In a sense, that's a universal problem because all marriages involve sinners, and the more you get to know someone, the more sinful you'll see that they are. The more shallow your relationship is with someone, the better they look. That's the way that sin works. It's like an onion that when you peel back layers, there are always more. There are always more layers of sin. And to be married to someone who's a sinner is to learn more and more about their sin that you didn't know when you started that relationship. So your expectations, who you thought that person were, are always going to be off. That's just the nature of sin. It's one of the points of a book that I've been reading lately. I've mentioned it to some of you guys by a guy named Paul Tripp. Let's get the best title, I think, of a marriage book that I've seen so far. It's the, the, the main title is Not What You Expected? Question mark. Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. It's one of the things that he gets at into the nitty-gritty of, of marriage relationship. I highly recommend it if you're looking for something to read. But more specifically, given this teaching on God's providential joining of marriage, I'd say that whether your spouse is who you thought he or she was isn't that relevant, Honestly not talking here about exceptions. Of course, if, if abuse is an issue, if abandonment is an issue, there are certainly times that God ordains things for our good that don't themselves seem good, like death and suffering. And, and, and that's not what I'm talking about here. Here I'm talking about the 99.9% of cases where, as believers, you can assume that God put you with your spouse on purpose, that he joined you together, and that that's what matters more than whether your individual expectations are getting met. So your spouse isn't who you thought they were? Tough. And to some extent, it's universal. But to another extent, it's irrelevant. Because what you want or desire is not nearly as important as the fact that you're married now. That you've been joined together by God. And that therefore, this is the person. This is the person you're meant to grow into relationship with, come what may. It's inconvenient. It's costly. It could be painful. But it's beautiful. In the same way that the cross was inconvenient... And costly and painful, but also beautiful. So, speaking of the cross, the second thing, if, if the foundation for how we come at marriage in reality, in light of sin, is that we understand it is something ordained by God and His providence, and therefore we don't question Him, we work within what He's given us, if that's the foundation, the fountain for marriage is most clearly seen in light of the larger context in which this passage comes in Mark. Ultimately, it comes right after and right before lots of talk about Jesus' death and the fact that discipleship, that Christian living, is playing out the reality of what Jesus did for us in the way that we treat each other. That he and his self-sacrifice on our behalf sets a template for how we sacrifice on behalf of others, and and it touches everything in the Christian life, and it certainly touches marriage. And the way that you live as if... Sin didn't affect your marriage. When sin does affect your marriage is that you need a deeper and more lasting affection for Christ that's rooted in what he's done for you on the cross. What Paul explains so well in Ephesians 5 is that marriage itself is like a grand parable for what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. The key to not fixating on unmet expectations, to fighting back self centeredness in marriage, and to fighting off the natural tendency to retaliate when your spouse wrongs you is an affection for Jesus that's rooted specifically in the reflection of his work on the cross. It's that great Chalmers sermon that we mention around here quite a bit the the expulsive power of a new affection. Greater willpower is not going to solve your marriage problems. Beating your spouse over the head is not going to solve your marriage problems. The struggle that you have to sacrifice on behalf of your spouse is only going to be solved if you cultivate an affection for Jesus that drives out the darkness that's holding you back. That drives out, in other words, the the sin and selfishness that color how you relate to your spouse. The beauty of the gospel is that In spite of the fact we've all chosen rebellion against God and his wise and loving authority as our creator, he acted in time and history to redeem us by absorbing the punishment that his justice demanded. That's the gospel. Jesus gave himself because we could never be good enough to win God's favor. And that's a message of hope for you today. If you've never trusted in Jesus, it stands true. It's been true for 2,000 years and for countless believers who have rested on him and found him to be reliable. And it can be true for you today if you haven't done that. But it's just as true. It's also a message, a set of good news, that gives us a template for our lives toward others. And this is nowhere more relevant than in marriage. In the gospel, we're reminded that we're sinners, just like our spouse is a sinner. In the gospel, we are reminded that we're never fully right even when it seems that way. And we're reminded to extend grace to them even when they're wrong. In the gospel, we're shown that Christ sacrificed Himself even for those who had sinned against Him. And we're inspired to sacrifice ourselves for the good of our spouses even even if we grant that they're in the wrong. Even admitting that they're wrong. Just concede that part of the argument. If they're wrong... The fact that Jesus came to you when you were still stuck in sin is the reason you come to your spouse and serve them while they're wrong. That's the beautiful text we read earlier from Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And while your spouse is still sinful, you are to die to self daily on their behalf. That's That's the beauty. That's the fountain. That's the image of Christ's work for us that's supposed to propel us to live marriage as it's designed to be lived. I think that's the message of Mark 10 for those of us who are married. Let me speak also to those of us who are unmarried, those of you who may be unmarried. Let me say first, I recognize there are some of you who probably wish that you were married, and that's a painful place to be. There are many things that I'd love to say to encourage you with the significance of of your singleness, to redeem it, to use it as an opportunity for the kingdom and I'd, I'd love a chance to do that in full over coffee sometime. But here I want to focus more specifically on applying the details of this text, what Jesus actually says here, to, and, and the fact that it's a challenge on the nature of marriage. I want, to, I want to try to shape those details to challenge you as you think about potentially being married. Here's a couple of things this text implies about how you should view the prospect of marriage from where you sit now. On the one hand, you should be really, really careful Be very, very careful. Marriage isn't like buying a TV from Walmart where you do your research, you make sure it's compatible with all the other things that you've got going in your system, and then you draw a conclusion that it is, and you go and purchase it, and you bring it home, and you make sure that you were right in your research and in your compatibility tests. You make sure that it fits with what you've got going on in your entertainment system. If it doesn't, you just take it back. Marriage isn't like that. That's the way we're taught to think about decisions in life, that there's always a way out to find the way that's going to limit our options the least. Marriage isn't like that. As it's designed by God, there is no room for buyer's remorse. Christian marriage calls for a countercultural, unwavering commitment. So be careful. On the other hand, don't slip from being careful into being immobilized by the fear of commitment that's just as big a problem almost in our culture as not being careful enough. For us, because we have so many options, because we're so used to being able to choose from a whole plethora of things we could do or where to eat or what to watch or what kind of TV to buy, we're used to options and we don't like to limit them. And so that becomes a barrier for many people to making the kind of commitment that marriage requires. Studies, I don't know if you've seen these numbers before, but studies based on census data have shown that, for example, the proportion of men who are married in their 20s has fallen by half since 1970. And this is comparing the numbers from 2000 to the numbers in 1970, from 59% of men in their 20s down to 31% of men in their 20s. We like to keep options open. We don't want to be pinned down. We fear the road not taken. And so we get frozen by the what-ifs. But ultimately, this shows a lack of trust in the providence of God. The same providence of God that I've said is the foundation for working in your marriage once you've got it is the providence you should trust in taking the plunge that is marriage. You do the same things you would do to make any good decision. You make sure that you're walking in obedience to God and the things He's told you that He wants from you. You make sure you've got good counsel. You make sure that the person you're walking with in this relationship also sees things as much as you can tell in the same way that you do. On the most important issues, and then you make your choice, trusting the providence of God. It's good and right to aspire to marriage. It's a gift of God, and for Christians specifically, it's designed to sanctify us in ways that 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 it. You just can't get sanctified hardly in other kinds of relationships. It's a very uniquely designed relationship to show you just how selfish you are, to reveal what's really in your heart. It provides you a set of circumstances in which the real you can come out and be exposed and be attacked by the message of the gospel. It's God's gift. So trust the providence of God. Remember that it's he who joins you in marriage and make commitment if that is is an option for you in your life. That's how you should look at marriage in light of what Jesus has said in Mark 10. Finally, finally, I want to say a word to any of you here who may be divorced in a room this size. There are inevitably some of you who have either divorced yourself or in a relationship with someone who is, and, and you or they may struggle with guilt. I understand that. It's understandable given how severely that Jesus condemns divorce here. It's understandable given the fact that God doesn't recognize divorce. In His eyes, the, the union stands strong and firm. But if that's where you find yourself, let let me remind you that there is no sin, there is no sin, including divorce, that the grace of God cannot cover. I don't want to minimize anything I've said about the importance of avoiding divorce, but this truth has to be balanced with a clear truth already shown earlier in Mark, over and over, that Jesus came here for sinners. Jesus put it like this. It's that it's the sick who need a doctor. Ultimately, that stands for all of us. It's true for all of us in one way or the other. And the the grace that's offered to us in Christ Jesus is just as effective to cover the stain that you may be feeling in your soul over broken past relationships as it is effective for any other sin. There's power here to overcome the guilt that you feel. There's power here to, to overcome the guilt that you deserve because you are a sinner. Rest, the call to you in light of Mark 10, but in light of the whole big picture that Mark is drawing, the, the the whole story that begins in chapter 1 and carries through to where we are now, the thrust of that story is a call to you to rest in the sufficiency of what Jesus accomplished, to embrace his promise of a new birth that starts everything fresh. A new beginning for all who rest on Him. No matter how dirty you feel, Jesus can wash you clean and He'll do it. He wants to if you rest in Him. Lord, we, we need Your power to work in us to make us holy. Your truth is been written for us, recorded here for thousands of years in words that are very plain. Even after that much time, even with the radical differences in our context from the context in which they were written, these words are unmistakable. We know that's your grace speaking to us still, and so we thank you for it, but we also recognize that we are not up to the task that this text sets before us. The marriage ideal that you have established even at creation itself is one that is too lofty for us in our own power. So what we ask for is your grace to work itself out in our lives to make us more holy. We ask for greater faith to trust in the power of Jesus' death to erase our past failures. And we ask for the power of the Spirit to be active Making the new life that is ours in Christ more and more a reality each day. We commit these prayers to you because we know that's what you want for us. And in the powerful name of Jesus, we know that you hear us. So we pray to you in his name. Amen.